0: Welcome to Appearance Matters the Podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade.
1: And today we have a very special episode in response to popular demand. um, Seriously, we had just so many requests, which is great. Um, We are sharing the panel discussion from Appearance Matters 9, the Centre for Appearance Research's conference that we held virtually back in July.
0: And before we get to the panel, we should just say here, the conference was... Amazing. It was such a feat to put on a virtual conference during a global pandemic. So huge shout out to the conference co-chairs, Amy Slater, Heidi Williamson, Helena Lewis-Smith and Nicholas Dock. So on to the panel. The panel entitled Is a Body Confident Society Possible amidst a Obesity Epidemic? was a highlight for many conference attendees, myself included. It explored the concept of obesity and whether it's possible for body positivity and body neutrality movements to work in synergy with the so-called obesity epidemic, with the big picture aim to advance conversations around the impact of focusing on weight in relation to health, the continued use of BMI or body mass index as a health measurement, and the effect of obesity on weight stigma, shame, and bias. It was a nuanced, insightful conversation over a thorny topic as the title suggests.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to listen back. The panellists were absolutely amazing. And I honestly could have listened to them like for hours to speak because it was brilliant. We're going to leave our colleague, Sharon Haywood, and also one of the panel organisers to introduce the panellists and moderator, Karen Franklin.
2: Hello, everybody. It's great to have you here. My name is Sharon Haywood, and I'm a research associate here at the Center for Appearance Research. And I'd like to welcome you all to the AM9 panel discussion, Is a Body Confident Society Possible amidst the Obesity Epidemic? Please be aware that this special panel event will involve the discussion of weight, weight stigma, weight discrimination, obesity, and health. We intend that the language used in discussing these issues will form part of the conversation today. And we are aware that these can be sensitive topics. As such, we ask everyone to be respectful and considerate of the different perspectives held by both the panel and the audience members. We are delighted to welcome a distinguished panel, respected and knowledgeable in their fields. And we are honored to be able to bring them all together today in this penultimate session of AM9. So in alphabetical order, um, I'd like to introduce you to first Stuart Flint, an Associate Professor of the Psychology of Obesity at the University of Leeds, and Director of the charity Obesity UK. Stuart has written about the harmful effects of weight stigma and specializes in behavior change techniques. Next, we have Sarah LeBrock. She is a public speaker and strategic council member of the all-party parliamentary group on obesity. Sarah is involved with research on obesity and is a patient representative on the Royal College of Physicians Advisory Group on Weight and Health. Sarah is advocating for the formal recognition of obesity as a disease in the UK. Next, we have Marcuselle Mercedes, who also goes by Mikey. She is a fat liberationist writer, creator, and doctoral student from the Bronx, New York. As a presidential fellow at the Brown University School of Public Health, She's an emerging expert in weight stigma examined through a critical lens that blends fat studies, scholarship on race and racism, and critical pulp public health studies. Her ultimate goal is to push the field of public health in alignment with the values of longtime movements for liberation, justice, and abolition. Next, we have Nia Patterson. She is an eating disorder recovery and mental health advocate. She has spent much of the past four years documenting her recovery from bulimia, obsessive-compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and bipolar disorder on Instagram and her blog. Nia hosts a new podcast called Body Trauma, where guest speakers recount experiences in their bodies and lives. And last but not least, we have Esther Rothblum, our keynote speaker here at the conference. She is a professor and chair of women's studies at San Diego State University, and LGBTQ studies advisor. Esther has conducted research into weight and employment discrimination, fat women, and weight stigma and weight in an international context. Esther is a journal editor for fat studies an interdisciplinary journal of body weight and society. We're also thrilled to welcome back Karen Franklin as moderator of this event, the third time we have had the pleasure of benefiting from her immense skill and expertise in this role. Thank you so very much, Karen. For those of you not familiar with Karen, she is a fashion commentator and former editor best known for her 12 years on the BBC's primetime show, The Closed Show. Known for her work writing and commenting on self-esteem and body dissatisfaction, she's a former ambassador for the Eating Disorders Association, later known as BEAT, and has consulted for inclusive clothing brands. Karen is co-founder and co-director of All Walks Beyond the Catwalk, an initiative that challenged the fashion industry's lack of diversity from 2009 to 2015. Karen has also worked with government ministers, mental health experts, and fashion educators nationwide. Presently, Karen works as a consultant for inclusive clothing brands, and her interests lie in self-esteem and the politics of image. So without further ado, I will now hand over to Karen.
3: Thank you very much, Sharon, and welcome everyone to my panellists and the audience. Um, It's going to be a really exciting session. So I'm just going to start uh, to talk a little bit about the uh, cultural and social narratives that are changing around us already. In this last year, there has been a much needed acceleration of race equality language and challenge to white centricity. This means white denial White fragility and white privilege may be part of a new vocabulary for many in this room today. And I start with this because we take responsibility for bias and fixed mindsets which define and confine others in order to change systems around us. And we can also look to appearance pressures in many forms. So today we are joined by an esteemed panel to discuss the culture and discourse surrounding large bodies, the medicalization of these bodies and the commercial exploitation of weight bias and weight stigma. As you know, I come from a culture drenched in appearance and weight bias with a simplistic one size fits all mentality. Clothing offers are limited under serving a size, uh, under size and body difference communities and marketing portrayals, iconize only one body type. Uh, the thin white young model is positioned within the heteronormative framework Yet we need to see a broader spectrum of humanity and engage with wider viewpoints and perspectives for the pro-social shift we all want to experience. So there's much for us to learn because we're all on the journey together. And in a setting like this, speaking our truth is an act of generosity. And it's only when we have a spectrum of opinions that we can truly learn. So I do thank our panel in advance. And before we start exploring the overarching question of whether a body confident society is possible amidst the so-called obesity epidemic, we're just gonna review a few terms. So firstly, The word obesity appears with an asterisk replacing the letter E, which is a convention that's growing in popularity for those who find the term to be stigmatising. As this is not possible when speaking, I'm confirming to all panel members and audience that the intention to speak with respect about larger bodies remains. Body confidence refers to accepting and generally feeling content with how we look and what our bodies can do. Body confidence and body positivity are regularly used interchangeably. However, body positivity is often used to reference the body positive movement or the BOPO movement, a movement that has its roots, in fact, activism. As the body positivity movement has become mainstream, some of its proponents have lost sight of the importance of fat activism, and in some places exclude fat bodies from this discourse, something that may come up in our discussions today. We recognize that this panel focuses focuses on topics that draw out very different viewpoints and in some cases can trigger heated debates and one of the main objectives of putting this panel together is to attempt to advance the conversation around the issues of weight stigma in a constructive way and to hopefully find some consensus on designing uh, defining future directions that will serve to move us closer to eliminating weight stigma and improving the lives of people in large larger bodies. So we don't have someone representing mainstream public health discourse around weight today, but here is a positioning statement from the NHS website. When a person's BMI is greater than 30, the condition is named obesity. It's considered an important risk factor for poorer health outcomes due to reported association with conditions such as type two diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, and most recently COVID-19. So I'd like to open this out right now to uh, our panelists. We exist in a culture of weight loss prompts. The medical promotion of weight loss as a perceived imperative for greater health is one. How do our panel respond? Sarah, if I can come to you to start, please, and kick it off.
4: Yeah, you know, when we look at... At the moment around body shape and size and and kind of people are in a larger body the kind of narrative that we have in societies in the uk is well all you need to do is eat less and move more you know that's kind of what everyone talks about that's kind of the thing that you kind of get chastised about um and it that's the biggest frustration really because if you understand the science behind obesity or people living in larger bodies you realize, you know that it's actually not that simple in any way, shape or form, um, because if it was that simple, this, we just wouldn't be in this situation. Um, and I think when we look at something like the Foresight Report, which was a government-led document that was created in 2007, what that did was highlight that there's over 100 different factors as to why someone lives with obesity. And, and those kind of look at things like your environment kind of so where you live and the, the kind of obesogenic environment that we kind of live in societal factors it takes into bio the biology the the psychology the genetic aspects there's, there's just so many different reasons why someone might live in a larger body or with obesity yet we seem to really just focus on a very simple approach of kind of eat less move more um, and I think what that does is give society this messaging that this is somebody's fault that it's a choice and that they've done it to themselves and actually why should we help people that have done this to themselves you know why should we help people in bigger bodies they've chosen to be this way so let's just leave leave them to it Uh, and that's kind of where that, that you know I get a lot of backlash when I talk in the media about obesity you know that's con- I constantly get those comments back around you're just coming up with excuses these are just excuses this isn't the truth this is just you trying to justify the way you are um, and it's um yeah very frustrating and I think for me what I'd like to see is just more understanding around the true complexities as to why people live in different shapes bodies Um and so people can understand that actually this is just the way it is and we just need to work out a way of of managing it and living healthier lives and not focusing on that image of what the way someone looks. So that's kind of my take on it.
3: Thank you, Sarah. I'm going to come to Esther. We seem to be also in a kind of space where the media is um, uh, creating a a lot of information, simplistic information. So this sort of so-called obesity epidemic. What's your view?
5: Yeah, well, I think that right now, um, this is a moral panic, and there have been different panics uh, in the past. I also think that, um, especially for women, uh, women have always been told how to look uh, across cultures and across historical time. And you'll notice in the media, very much the focus is actually um, on women. But uh, just uh, leaving where uh, Sarah, what Sarah mentioned, uh, there are many factors. And I think a major one here is income. So in uh, wealthier nations, uh, there's a very strong correlation between weight and income, poor people are fatter, richer people are thinner. And I always say you can almost replace when you hear the word obesity, you can replace it with poverty. So you mentioned COVID, but people say fat people get COVID. Well, poor people get COVID because they're the ones who are doing the essential workers, you know, in uh, delivering food or in nursing homes um, and so on. And um, and so really, we really need to keep environmental factors in play here. You know, why is it that, um, you know, poor people um, uh, get these diseases, uh, fat people get these diseases, fatness and poverty are very correlated.
3: Thank you. Nia, I could see you nodding there. Could I bring you in, please?
6: Sure. Um, I guess I agree that, like, with replacing the word fat with poverty in some regards, because, I mean, a lot of Black communities specifically are at a lower socioeconomic level. And so when we see a high level of Black people dying from COVID or from cardiovascular effects, um, a lot of time it has to do with their socioeconomic level, their greater understanding of health and just all of the different socio-developmental like factors that lead to living in those bodies, in those communities, definitely. Um, But I also am just very conscious of the fact that health isn't necessarily accessible to everyone Um, And so a lot of times it's okay to be fat if you're healthy or if you're working out, going to the gym, but we've got fat people in chronically ill bodies. We've got fat people in disabled bodies who can't access health in the same way. And essentially society does not give them respect, give them worthiness because they're unable to access health when they sh- they're still humans, they still deserve to be treated as humans and have respect regardless of any sort of health in their life.
3: Thank you, that's, that's a really important point and speaks to our biases where there are some kinds of fat that are okay but others are not. And I don't know if any of us are even aware that we're holding those ideas. Um, Mikey, can I come to you, please?
7: Absolutely. Um, So I think that, you know, something that was so striking to me about what Esther and and, and Nia just said is, you know, um, the way that morality is wrapped up in conversations about weight, right? So I think it's always important to distinguish that despite the way conversations about weight and, you know, the medicalization of fatness or obesity often overlap, it's, it's increasingly important to specify that weight is a neutral characteristic of the human body. It doesn't inherently denote any form of health or moral alignment in and of itself, but the use of the word obesity, on the other hand, works in the opposite way. So to say that someone is obese or that a country is obese or that the world is becoming obese that increasingly makes a, a moral judgment on that person, region or world that has nothing to do with physiology and it has everything to do with bias and stigma. Um, when we sort of try to usher in health into conversations about, about weight, we're inherently stating that fatness, certain forms of fatness are in opposition to health and that always leads its way back to morality. You know. Um, the only reason why we started to really panic about badness in the first place is because European travelers saw Africans just doing their own things and living their own lives, and then linked their weight or their adiposity with sinfulness, with blackness. That was these, these increasing notions of wrongness tied to the African continent um, that were bolstered by things like race science, like the actions of, of quote unquote academics of the time. So I always want to be really, really intentional and stating that weight itself is not a moral issue. The way it's discussed by medicine, by media, by, you know, by multiple domains, it's discussed as a moral issue, but it in and of itself is not a moral issue. And the only time that I will, you know, I feel like this is also important to note, I don't like to use the word obesity. Um, and I only use it when I'm actively critiquing it as a concept, when I'm critiquing the medicalization of fatness. Um, and so when we, I know we're eventually gonna move into a conversation about language, but I think it's, it's also really important to, to think about what the utility of this language is and to who, right? Um, so yeah, that was, that was my piece.
3: <laughs> Thank you, beautifully put. Um, and Stuart, if I can come to you for a, a, an overview. Um, we've you know to, as, as you say media framing is different from healthcare or policy framing
8: yeah and some great points already made by uh, the other panelists so uh, always useful for me just to be able to wrap up and say yes I agree with everybody um, but what I first want to say is that the statement that you made right at the start I actually want to quash that straight away because the perception that uh, it's imperative to lose weight to improve health is not what we know from the, the literature, uh, the evidence, because that would suggest there's a causal relationship there, which we know is not true, uh, at best we have is uh, associations between weight status and other uh, and health. So uh, firstly, what I want to do is just quash that, because that isn't correct. And if uh, anybody in the medical community is following that, uh, that perception, then that wouldn't be aligned to the evidence base. Um, in terms of framing of weight and obesity in public discourse, as I mentioned, it will differ across settings. So, healthcare, media, education, uh, and other. Um, you know, as Sarah mentioned, for instance, we will see very simplistic explanations or descriptions of um, factors that may contribute to our weight status more generally. Uh, but of course, weight gain, weight loss, um, they typically revolve around uh, energy uh, uh, consumption versus energy expenditure. And that really doesn't reflect the many, many different factors that contribute to our weight status and our health status more generally. And they span many different determinants, whether it's genetics, whether it's psychological, social, economic, and so on. Um, and Esther um, uh, mentioned uh, income. Well, we know income is probably the strongest factor that is associated with health. Um, you know, there's, it's not a surprise that not only prevalence of uh, obesity, but a prevalence of uh, mental health uh, concerns and other physical health concerns are higher in low uh, income areas. So, you know, uh, levels of deprivation is clearly a key factor. And actually, if you look at some of the evidence from some groups, there's um, Adrian Dranowski's group in the US, uh, and the factor that they see as most um, relevant as um, uh, impacting levels of obesity is actually um, um, someone's zip code. Um, so, Income clearly is a, is, a, is a factor that we need to consider. Um, I mentioned there's differences in terms of media and and um, maybe uh, policy in terms of framing of obesity. I think that's really important. Uh, media framing, of course, um, and, and portrayal more generally, doesn't in many instances reflect the evidence base around uh, weight status or, or obesity. Um, and because of that, in many instances, they're actually pushing many stereotypes and uh, founded Um, information about weight status and if if they're truly suggesting that this is a way of uh, increasing or improving people's uh, knowledge or understanding about health well we should be ensuring that accurate information is disseminated to the public and so I actually believe that the media in many instances are doing a public disservice by uh, presenting lots of inaccurate information that isn't aligned to the evidence base and that is impacting uh, people is leading to increased Uh, weight stigma attitudes, and of course, internalization of stigma, both of which we know are associated with health concerns, independent of our weight status, it will impact many people, and it will impact our engagement in different types of health behaviors or even engagement with healthcare, depending on where stigma is uh, experienced. So I think they're critically important. And the other thing that I will say, and It's something that I I challenge the government on uh, in many instances here in the UK and and some of the international work that I will deliver is there's a disconnect between what the media are doing and what the government are are doing. And that's not to say that what the government are doing is always right. Uh, Actually, in many instances is uh, is, is not right uh, in terms of their approach around um, overweight or obesity more generally. Um, But there's a disconnect and actually the media um, play a role in terms of um you know disseminating inaccurate information about policies public health policies as we're talking about policies based on the question inaccurate information about policies inaccurate information about how policies or campaigns are, are going to be run and other. and um you know from day one therefore actually the media are um are disseminating inaccurate information which means that the public don't really understand what policies are about um, because let's, let's face it, less than 1% of the population are going to pick up a policy document and read the policy. They read the media's description of it or the media's interpretation of whether they think it's going to be successful. And I think that's that's a critical issue. If I, if I mention one last thing, because I realise I'm rambling too much here, um, is that um, I think what's, um, what's also key here is that moralization. Esther mentioned the moral panic around weight and obesity more generally. That's clearly very, very important here. And what we see here is that in many instances, um, moral uh, discourse is very evident about uh, people with a higher weight status. um, And certain moral judgments are very much associated with people with a higher weight status. Um, And the reason that that's important is because when people are described as immoral or behaving in immoral ways, Um, it leads to negative emotions and responses. And in particular, what we do know is that feelings of disgust, feelings of hatred are very much associated with perceptions of uh, immorality. So that's really key. Um, And when we think that those types of behaviours or or people within our uh, community are impacting us, then those feelings of disgust and hatred become stronger. Um, And a good example of this is when the soft drinks industry levy came in the UK, i.e. the, the tax on sugared drinks. It was described uh, in the media as we're bringing this tax in because of people with a higher weight status, so of people living with obesity. Um, and what ultimately happened was is that the population were responding and saying, well, why do I have to pay more tax because of people living with obesity? Because people can't control it. So all the media d- depictions. And that led to a major increase in stigmatizing views, stigmatizing attitudes, and maybe even discriminatory behaviors, Um, when in fact, actually reducing our sugar content actually would be beneficial for all of us across the population. It's not something that's specific to a certain group, but because of the way it was framed to the public, it's actually increased stigmatizing views.
3: Okay, thank you, Stuart. You've dived in there. Um, thanks very much with, with quite a lot to, um, to, to pull out. So let's, let's take on weight stigma and the effect that it has on people living in larger bodies. Perhaps, Mikey, if I could come to you first.
7: Uh, well, weight stigma shapes the world in a way that every single person experiences, like across the size spectrum. Um, but fat people in particular are, har- are harmed by how weight stigma shapes the world and it shapes healthcare guidelines that everyone uses, for example, but fat people in particular are targeted by. And so when we understand that some of the fat people, for example, that seek out healthcare, are black or disabled or trans, or they hold all three of those identities, then we sort of understand how weight stigma works as a vehicle for other sources of bigotry too. So, um, you know, and this is obviously in addition to yes, weight stigma makes you refrain from health-promoting behaviors. Yes, weight stigma can cause food fixation. Yes, weight stigma, you know, um, can, uh, uh, it's supposedly related to maladaptive eating disorders, like, like, like eating behaviors. Um, Those are all very important, but I, I like to focus on the mistreatment piece, especially within medicine, because I think that's, a very concrete way of situating the the sort of harm that fat people are exper- are exposed to, even in settings in which they're supposed to be afforded like the best care possible. Um, so yeah, weight stigma shapes everything. Um, but, you know, uh, I think a lot of people, especially fat people, especially fat activists, constantly go back to medical fat phobia in particular because it's like the most obvious form of mistreatment. But then we also have like weight stigma related to diminished income prospects, diminished education prospects. Um, It obviously causes a a strong sense of social isolation, which can have horrible effects um, depending on its degree. Um, There's just a million different ways that weight stigma harms, hurts, Kills fat people. And, and I'm not even talking about just like in terms of how we are forced to withdraw from the world in order to protect ourselves. I'm talking about how even when we sort of take the step to show up, how we are hurt in those interactions. Um, and, you know, there's there's no justification for it. Even Even the science that is supposedly supposed to justify that kind of behavior you know, through the linkage to chronic diseases or, or certain forms of illness, it doesn't even justify that behavior. Like, cause the science isn't there. Like this is all pure bigotry, wrapped up in scientific justifications that don't actually work, so.
3: Thank you, thank you. I'm gonna bring Nia in straight away. You talked about medical fat phobia. Nia, your thoughts?
6: Yes, I, um... I completely agree. I, I just I hear so many stories of people who have died have had significant medical conditions that were ignored because the doctor just said go lose some weight. Um, I've heard of people who have lost significant amounts of weight just in order to get the help that they need, and then at that point the doctor finally realizing that there's actually a medical condition there and not just weight. Um, And so it's not just a matter of, you know, getting trolled online or things that affect people's mental health, which is still health, um, but things that can essentially kill people or do them greater harm. Um, And it's, it's so frustrating because doctors are supposed to be the people who look out for us, take care of us, um, make sure that we don't die and that we get equitable care and they are the people who know essentially the least. Um, for me, like I, I am in recovery from an eating disorder and still, going to the doctor and having them recommend weight loss surgery to me after we've just had an entire conversation about how I'm in recovery from an eating disorder, there is still this assumption that being fat is worse than all of the rest of my health combined. Um, Even though me losing however many pounds isn't going to fix my health, in and of itself, necessarily. Um, and it's just so devastating because you have to go to the doctor for so many different things. Like there's no other way around it, essentially, because it's a specific skill set. Um, and knowing that you are going into a hostile environment, knowing that it is potentially traumatizing and you still having to go in there with the hope that they will help you it's just it's horrible it's it's just so devastating
3: Mia, yeah, thank you you paint a picture that i think for for many of us um we're all reflecting upon thank you for uh, helping us understand sarah you were nodding at uh, uh, when both mia
4: and mikey were talking what will you add yeah, just, you know, I agree with a lot, you know, lots of what they've said. In a way, it's, it's this assumptive kind of thing that people do when they look at you. You know, you walk into a room and someone looks at your body shape and decides already kind of all the things that could possibly be wrong with you and they get they know absolutely nothing about you um, and it's not just about health really it, it's about things like they think you're less educated less clever you know they think that you're lazy that you just sit and eat all the time that you you know they're making assumptions about lots of things that they absolutely have no kind of um data to support you know they're just making these out of their out of their head and, and for me that's my the, one of the things that I've had very personal experiences of um, even in the workplace. So I once had a boss kind of say to me that he didn't think I was capable of doing my job because of the way that I looked, because um, I was in sales in healthcare, and um, and just the fact that people think it's okay to actually verbalise that and say that out loud to someone just kind of horrifies me that we think it's okay, um, and and that's the bit for me is that you know society just thinks that somebody's body shape or size is something they can, it's fair game, we can just say what we want about it, because it's not something that's, um, you know, a protected characteristic, and I really think it should be, because, you know, we no one is allowed to do this about race now, yes, it still happens, but, you know, there are things in place saying, no, this is not okay now, Um, and I think when it comes to body shape and size, I really think that Step I would like to see happening in the future, because it would hopefully start going in the right direction with regards to kind of how we do talk about this and the behaviour that people have. Because, you know, we've touched on mental health. And I think someone once said to me, you know, do you because I don't like the way that I look. I openly say this all the time. You know, I have a real issue. I would like to be in a smaller body. I would. Um, you know, I'm not going to, to, to deny that. But someone once said to me, why do you think that is? Is it because of you or is it because of society? And I think I like, can hand and heart say it's because of society and if society valued people of my body shape and size more i probably would feel happier in my body shape that i'm in now but because it doesn't it makes me want to live in a smaller size body and for me that's kind of the real crux of it there and i think that's what needs to change uh so there's my thoughts
3: thank you thank you i'm going to come straight to esther because cultural attitudes around weight are key here, aren't they? There are some ethnicities, some groups who have a much more uh, expansive uh, understanding of body type.
5: Yes, I mean, research in the US uh, finds that African-American and Latina girls and young women are happier with their uh, bodies. Um, have a lower rate of eating disorders, and way more. Uh, And interestingly, of course, the diet industry is trying to recruit them into so-called culturally sensitive uh, diets. Uh, Also, uh, Paul Campos has said that, you know, I think as Sarah also mentioned, it's not okay to be overtly racist or classist, but it's perfectly okay to discriminate against fat people. And again, given the association between weight and income, that also means often is referring to poorer people and also um, people of color. And I also want to mention that um, my research has found that uh, people sexually involved with men, that is heterosexual women and gay men, tend to be more focused on weight and dieting than people involved with women, that is heterosexual men and lesbians. So I think there are many different uh, intersectional issues here um that um you know researchers need to focus on
3: thank you i'm going to bring Mikey in again because you want to comment on that don't you
7: yeah so um and this is something that i see happen time and time again and i think it's only possible because um I am a black woman who reviews weight stigma literature like day in day out. That is literally what I do at any given moment. Um, there is this very present strain of thought in fat studies, in weight stigma research, um, that constantly puts racism and 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 weight stigma in opposition to each other, like. It says, oh, um, we have laws and policies against racist behavior in this clinical context. Oh, you know, racism isn't nearly as socially acceptable as it was. In op- like, in contrast to how we treat fat people nowadays. No, <laughs> no, um, fat black people are exposed to harm to violence that has not only been not accurately captured by any form of research and I'm I'm talking about any form of quantitative sort of like empirical, empirical classically empirical type research um because there's plenty of qualitative wonderful innovative qualitative work that's going on in the field of fat studies and in public health that sort of um sheds light on on that on that sort of intersection like very well um, but in terms of quantitative research I have not seen a study that has approached the intersectional measurement of weight stigma among people of color in a meaningful way. I have not seen that. Like I, I'm currently working on a systematic review of the literature. I have read literally every intervention that has been done in this area. There isn't a single intervention and, stu- and descriptive study. There is no study in fat studies, in public health, anywhere that I've seen that accurately captures that difference. So when we say that there are larger body ideals in Black communities, for example, or, or in Latinx communities that sort of pr- provide like a protection buffer, like from, you know, um, the thin white ideal or something like that, um, I don't think we have the means to say that because all of the work that's been done so far has been done by like white and or thin researchers who are not equipped to capture that nuance, and th- and it hasn't been done. So I don't think we have the real like data to back the un- to back the idea that you know these body ideals are different and protective in communities of color. I don't think that's a thing we can say. Um, I also think that we need to stop placing racism and weight stigma in opposition to each other because there are people who exist along both of those axes of oppression. And it is it makes no sense to to slice apart sources of stigma like that. Um and, and if anything, I think that sort of encourages an additive approach to intersectionality and, and it displays a real misunderstanding of what that means in the first place. So I just I think we should in general as a field, as people who care about dismantling weight stigma, please stop putting racism in opposition to wasting them because all it does is exclude fat black people or people who are fat and also have other identities that are racialized and you know according to their various according contexts and that was what i wanted to say
3: (laughs) thank you mikey um such a lot of learning here for us all um and you know key to what you're saying is you know who are the researchers and what are they bringing into their research questions. So thank you, Stuart. I'm going to ask you to round off on this question. You uh, also, I think, were bringing in um, gender comparisons.
8: Yes, yeah, so, so briefly, uh, very much in alignment with uh, Mikey and Nia's comments right at the start. You know, there's obviously wide ranging impacts on, on weight stigma on people, as, uh, as we all know. Um, but what we should also mention here is that some of the social uh, impacts and so on that was mentioned—I I, I think it was Mikey uh, Mike, or the Mikey or Nia mentioned—for instance, impacts on employment and other—they of course also have impacts on health as well. So you know, impacts in terms of lack of employment or engagement in employment and so on can impact health. So you know, they don't happen in isolation. All of these are, can, can um, have a combined impact uh, as such. So I think that's important to mention. Um, In terms of um, how stigma can impact different uh, groups within the population, we we, we certainly see uh, plenty of evidence that demonstrates that weight stigma typically is stronger towards females compared to males, Um, you know, so there's been plenty of research that, for instance, has demonstrated that females with a higher weight status experience stronger stigma compared to males with a higher weight status i mean that's that's very evident within lots of literature and has been demonstrated probably for a couple of decades now actually um and that's in many different settings as well whether it's employment or or other um so that's very key um we also do see that stigma is experienced differently by people of different ethnic groups as well um so we do know that actually Um, Typically, um, although as Mikey's mentioned, um, a lot of that work isn't as robust as we would like um, and hasn't been explored to the extent that we would like, we do see that actually stigma towards um, people in minority ethnic groups within the population experience stronger stigma compared to uh, the dominant ethnic group. So, there are differences there. My approach in terms of legislation, because ultimately that's where the discussion's kind of gone to some aspects, um, around about 2012, we did quite a lot of work around legislation in the UK. Um, What we use here is something called the Equality Act. But my um, approach there, after really identifying there was a gap there, which ultimately meant that people um, uh, with a a higher weight status would potentially still experience discrimination um, in, in workplaces and other. Um, was that really it's how can we really understand what weight stigma experiences are Um, and so when you look at the Equality Act and and be very similar for laws elsewhere weight stigma uh, and experiences of weight stigma typically reflect hatred, victimization, uh, harassment and those three are three of the four uh, characteristics uh, descriptions of discriminatory behaviour as outlined in the Equality Act. So from my perspective, that's really what we should be thinking about in terms of if there, is, there, is there a legislative element here and should we be pushing legislation relating to waste stigma? I, I think there is. Um, but that for me really is the is the crux. Is it hatred? Is it, dis, is it harassment? Is it victimisation? Yes, it is. So actually the Equality Act and legislations elsewhere should be protecting uh, against people experiencing stigma and discrimination across society.
3: Thank you, Stuart. I'm going to um, sort of uh, slightly recalibrate my next question, given your correction at the top. So thank you for um, making it it, it clear. Um, There is a culture of weight loss being linked to better physical health. Um, But also we uh, have a culture of body positivity, uh, you know, one on one hand, one on the other. Can we uh, sort of reconcile both these positions for mutually sort of beneficial existence? I'm going to come back to you, Stuart.
8: Yes, sure. And and just to clarify that I wasn't um, mentioning that, but I think that ultimately is what we typically see is that people talk about um, a causal relationship between weight loss and, and health and that's why i think it's important to mention that it, there isn't isn't a causal um, even in the evidence um, that is talked. Um, in terms of um, uh, i think relationship between body positivity and health is that correct yes yes um,
3: both exist stuart that they can both exist I, I think at the
8: moment it's very difficult for them both to exist with the current framing of uh obesity and higher weights and its relationship with with health. Um, Ultimately, I think that in many instances, body positivity has got a bad press. The way that the media describe body positivity has has, uh, given it a bad press. Um, In many instances, um, it's described as as something that ultimately is trying to promote weight gain, is trying to promote certain body sizes over others, which ultimately isn't. As you started out at the start, it's it's not about saying a specific body shape or size or other is better than another or that we should be um you know almost grading people differently based on body sizes that's not what body positivity is about as you as you mentioned right at the start so i think that ultimately the the way that body positivity is discussed and and described to the public mean that that's why we're seeing some of that backlash i think uh in society because um you know what the public understand about body positivity is not what the theory ultimately was was, was developed to to
5: deliver.
3: Okay, thank you. And Esther, uh, do you think they can both exist?
5: No, I don't. I mean, if you think about it, um, assuming that people need to lose weight is the opposite of body positivity. It sort of reminds me in my youth when people would get sexual reorientation therapy to become heterosexual, how would that improve anybody feeling good about their you know, queer sexuality. Um, And given that diets really don't work in the long run, it's just sort of asking people to get on a fruitless endeavor and then feel bad about themselves.
4: Okay, thank you. And Sarah, to you. Yeah, this is an interesting one for me because I think when, and and again, you mentioned at the beginning where there's this crossover between kind of the body positivity and kind of body body image kind of take on it. There's a big part of me that would like to like who I am, like I've touched on before. So I would love to have that kind of more positive body image around myself. But I suppose that kind of my background is in science. And so the scientist in me knows that by having additional kind of adipose tissue in my body I am in an inflammatory state compared to somebody that doesn't have that and then kind of the 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 effect that could then have on my body for other things you know it doesn't mean I'm going to get diabetes for instance or hypertension or you know I very much don't believe that but it but I do believe that I am at an increased risk of and I think we need to make sure people just have the facts about that so it's a case of you know you're not necessarily going to and that's the bit where society seems to just point the finger of blame and be like you're this size you're going to get this you're going to cost us this you're a burden blah 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 that's not okay at all and I don't agree with that but what I do agree with is the fact that we need to kind of know the evidence know the facts and just know that it could happen because you are actually in a different state. You have more insulin resistance, potentially you have, you know, more biological and physiological things going on in your body that somebody that doesn't have that additional adipose tissue may not. So for me, it's kind of like, I don't know how they can when, the kind of body positive kind of community from what i've seen of it are very much against you absolutely shouldn't be losing weight if you feel okay about the way you look kind of scenario so that's where i kind of a bit conflicted because i think for me the focus is on health not weight so if i can improve my health by losing a bit of weight potentially or changing my my health behaviors then that's a good thing, but not necessarily a, you, you must not lose weight because that's a bad thing because we need to just love who you are. That's where I feel a bit conflicted. But I mean, as I say, I'm quite, I, I'm, I'm not massively versed in this, but that's just kind of my take on it as, as I stand.
3: Thank you. And um, everybody's opinions are vital. Personal input, lived experience is very valuable. Nia, I'm going to come to you um, because I think you're going to say you can't reconcile these positions.
6: Um, I'm going to say <laughs> that, um, let's see, I, I feel like intentional weight loss and body positivity don't jive together, but I don't think that there are fat people out here who are like in the actual body positive space saying like you better not lose weight or else like you're not body positive like I think that most people believe in body autonomy and that what you're doing with your body is up to you um I think in particular like if anything we're focusing on health behaviors we're not focusing on weight because to me like if you wake up like I don't know, 10% like thinner or 10% smaller, nothing's changed in those eight hours that you were asleep. Your health doesn't magically just get better. It's a number on the scale. Whereas if you're engaging in health behaviors, whether that's mental health, physical health, um, you're improving your health and therefore maybe you'll lose weight, maybe you'll gain weight, maybe your weight will stay exactly the same. But if you're able to improve your health, that's ideal. But once again, I feel like we're just constantly focusing on health. And that just seems so unattainable for so many people, because it just, I don't even, like, it just makes it so much harder on people who can't achieve a healthy body because of their body not functioning with them, not working with them. And us saying that you have to be pursuing health, you have to be healthy, just makes it morally difficult for them in order to function and be accepted in the world. But I honestly really wanna hear what Mikey has to say, so.
3: (laughs) Mikey, off you go. (laughs)
7: So, I mean, the first thing I was going to say was that I want to really emphasize what Nia said about body autonomy because, you know, as, and I see this from like multiple perspectives, um, as someone involved in fat activism, that is what we're striving for. And body autonomy is what is ripped from us when there are policies that are built exclusively around size and like size designations that are medicalized for lots of different reasons, none of them having to really do for, none of them really having to do with the well-being of patients. Um, Now, I want to put my researcher cap on for a second, because the leeway that we give this like supposed area of obesity science, obesity interventions, we give it so much leeway. We know that dieting doesn't work. And we know that it's dangerous. And we know that it gives rise to all kinds of harmful behaviors. And we also know that dieting often puts people into a cycle of weight cycling. And we know that weight cycling is harmful. And we know that weight cycling is dangerous. And we know how weight stigma is related to eating disorders and disordered eating, which are extremely deadly. We have all of this evidence In addition to the fact that we also have evidence that says weight is not really related to health in any causal way. And we also know, or at least we should know, that weight stigma literally confounds all of the research that we do, trying to link health to weight. We have all of this evidence in opposition to employing a weight-centric paradigm, and yet we are supposed to suspend our senses of disbelief and continue to work alongside this paradigm, which we have evidence doesn't work and is actually bad and like does more harm than it does good, if it does any good. And so the, the question of can weight loss interventions and interventions promoting body positivity, like if those things can coexist, I feel like the question we have to ask before that is, is that even worth doing? And the answer is no, (laughs) because we have the research that says that already. This isn't a thing we have to keep rehashing. So that's like the first thing. Obviously, as someone who has just made their position very clear, I do not think these two things should be reconciled. I don't think body positivity in its commercialized sense or in the sense of it being connected to fat activism through its like historical roots, I don't think that should be reconciled with a weight loss paradigm or a weight centric paradigm. It shouldn't. Um, One position is founded in much more evidence that it's given credence for, in people's experiences and real stakes. And the other position is founded in stigma. And there's no way around that. And yet we continue to hash these things out because we're supposed to afford the weight loss paradigm all of the space it needs to flourish and function when it's not even substantiated by the evidence that it's supposed to be. And that's what I have to say about that.
3: (laughs) Thank you, we're clear, Um, uh, very eloquent. And what I'm going to do panel, because I've got an eye uh, on the clock, I'm going to miss some questions out so that I can bring us to one that we all seem to be um, crowding around, which is then how can we And as individuals and societies reduce weight stigma, what actions should we prioritize? Now we're gonna take some questions. We have uh, a huge amount of questions piling up. So I would ask you to keep these um, responses fairly brief. So if I can come to, let me see, Sarah, can I come to you first,
4: please? Yep, absolutely. Um... So kind of the work that I do in the UK and one of the things that I focus on around trying to reduce weight stigma um, is around the kind of understanding of people actually living with how I describe living with obesity or living in a larger body. Um, Because I think a lot of the time people talk about obesity, people in bigger bodies and don't really understand what it's like. They don't understand the experiences. They don't understand what someone's going through. So for me, it's kind of the more we can share that that that's really important but also for me it's around understanding the science behind it and I know we've had various conversations about this now but um you know for me it's kind of understanding that genetics can play a huge part in the way someone's the body shape that somebody lives in and actually so you know if your genetics is is making you kind of predisposed to be a certain way you're fighting against that so therefore you know you are, are going to be in a bigger body potentially than somebody else and that's not somebody's fault so it's moving away from this kind of Blame culture of pointing the finger at someone and saying you've done this to yourself. You need to sort yourself out and see it as a negative way and be actually like people come in different shapes and sizes. Let's just embrace that. Let's just let people be. You know that's kind of the the, the mindset I want people to understand that it's it's not a choice. This is not a bad thing someone's done. Um, and hopefully get a bit more empathy and understanding so that society isn't so negative towards people. That's my thinking.
3: Okay, thank you. Nia, I'm going to come to you, please. What can we as individuals and societies do to reduce weight stigma? What actions should we prioritise? And I I was really impressed uh, kind of with your answer as taking the power um, back into yourself. you talked about um, what a traumatising experience it was to engage with the medical profession and saying no in terms of being weighed and being assessed in that way.
6: Yes, I think, I think there's like two routes, which is systemic change. In that, you know, we're giving doctors better education. We are um, finding other providers outside of phobic doctors for helping um, patients. And then I think there's also just the things that like normal people can do, such as like when you go to the doctor and refusing to be weighed, because if you're in a smaller body and you're refusing to be weighed, chances are you're not going to get a lot of blowback. But when I come in after you and like the previous five thin people have all refused to be weighed, it's not like I'm this like horribly angry fat black woman who doesn't want to be weighed. Um, It just becomes the norm. And So I think there's things like that that normal people can do because I don't think normal people are going to change the medical school process, but they can fix their, like, their communities, kind of. They can help other fat people in their communities, which means that you have to want to help fat people in your communities. Um, So listening to stories of fat people, being aware of just the the destruction that is weight stigma to people's lives um i think those are a few things
3: thank you and you also um uh in a previous conversation also talked about there being a medical module for doctors to engage with where they were confronted with their own biases as they began training so that this would uh help create a hypervigilance to this conversation um, through their training, which I thoroughly agreed with, I just said that so that we could get that in, um, in this limited time. So thank you. I'm going to come to Esther, please, uh, your take on what we can all do to reduce weight stigma.
5: Yeah, I mean, the biggest challenge is that this uh, industry is a multi-multi-billion-dollar industry. And so many corporations would have a lot to lose, no pun intended, if uh, people were um, stopped dieting or stopped going, you know, to using bariatric surgery or buying diet foods and, and so on. So that is a huge challenge. It's very different. I talked in my keynote address about queer as a corporate market. And corporations are happy to um, market items to the queer community once they figured out how not to offend the politically conservative community buying the same products. I also think it's very difficult to affect change as an individual, although obviously we we all do that. Um, I think that's why it really helps when there are groups forming around fat activism and so on. Um, And I thank all of you in your role in doing that, just to make life um, a bit easier.
3: Thank you. And Stuart, your take on what we can
8: all do, what institutions can do? Uh, Very difficult to identify one priority because there's so much that that needs to be done uh, because weight stigma is so pervasive. Um, Certainly, I would agree that we need to reflect on our own biases, uh, conscious and unconscious, and unconscious can be quite difficult, of course. But ultimately, our unconscious, our unconscious attitudes are typically reflecting the environment we live in. Now, we know the environment is very much uh, you know, stigmatizing towards people with a higher uh, body weight. Um, but clearly, there's a need to address stigma across media. I mentioned media before, uh, which, of course, is um, very much a vehicle that is uh, portraying uh, people of different body shapes and sizes in a very negative fashion, very disrespectful, inaccurate information and so on. Which is where we're losing a lot of the respect, empathy, compassion, dignity uh, that ultimately everybody should experience. Healthcare, education, uh, and so on. Um, so I think there's there's several, uh, maybe different areas where we need to need to uh, prioritise, but it's at all levels. I think you know, from policy down to the individual in communities.
3: Okay, thank you. And uh, Mikey, I was leaving you till last because I, I really like your response to this.
7: Yeah, um, so, and this is, you know, what I tell people, like I tell this to researchers, to people who are practitioners, people who are professionals, et cetera. Um, weight stigma is something that we need to mediate on a... Institutional social level, but we have to often start with our internal biases and how they get enacted in our own lives. So, like, I would ask, you know, researchers, people who are attending this conference, and especially my fellow panelists, like, do you have fat friends? Does the sight of fat people, including very fat people, um, make you uncomfortable? If you have children, do you have fears about your children being fat? You don't have to like, solve and answer every single one of these questions to start doing work to dismantle, like, weight stigma, but you do have to at least address them first. Like, you have to acknowledge that they're there. Um, Oftentimes, we have a tendency to talk about weight stigma, like, it's something very, very deep, and there absolutely is the issue of implicit bias, but a lot of these negative anti-fat attitudes are often extremely explicit, and so it doesn't take that much digging. To find an anti-fat attitude that we might all hold dear, um, I think the primary like example that I, I usually give people, and then they realize like, oh wow, I didn't realize I I thought that way. Is like when I ask them like, do you are you scared of your kids being fat? And and is that like aside from the issue of the harassment and harm that they might experience due to due to societal weight stigma, are you concerned that your child being fat is going to be a negative reflection of you and your parenting? And, you know, then, you know, once you sort of incorporate those real life examples, I think people sort of understand better how this works. Because it's not just that, like, you know, you have this avid hatred towards fat people. It's this desire to exclude us and to make sure that we don't exist or are present anywhere. And that's often like how it most often gets expressed. So handle them in your, in your, in yourself first. And then, you know, outside actions generally follow that.
3: Thank you, thank you, um, I'm a fantastic clarity. And of course, as individuals, we come together in institutions to become a collective. Um, so uh, quite rightly, we can all think about the position that we take. We've got some amazing questions come through. First one, which uh, so many people are agreed on, Great conversation so far and thank you to the speakers. Um, I wonder what the speakers feel about weighing children in schools, especially given some large scale research in the US that has shown it doesn't have any positive effect on health outcomes. Who would like to answer that one? Thank you, Mikey.
7: I raised my hand super fast because this is something I directly experienced Um, and it's horrible. So, Weighing children in schools is like the ultimate sort of, um, it's the ultimate result of the, of the moral panic, right? We have to protect the future generations from this, from this epidemic of obesity. Um, but all that does is humiliate and degrade students um, that are in larger bodies. Um, I've been subjected to, you know, gym class weigh-ins like that are public in front of everyone. And I've also been the recipient of a BMI report card, which, you know, uh, basically schools send a letter home saying, oh, this is where your this is your child's BMI. Like, you should be concerned about this because of X, Y, Z reasons. And it is the most g- glaring, burning mark of shame. Um, I think that I recall from my childhood, it's, I think it's important to mention that like children are, children are not equipped to sort of did like break down every instance of weight stigma or stigmatizing messaging they receive from school officials, from teachers, from people who are supposed to care for them. Um, They're not equipped to break that down to the most charitable interpretation. So all you're doing is letting, telling kids your body is too big. That is a problem. You need, a, you need to work on that. And so then that's how these sort of body fixation and food fixation attitudes seep in over the course of a childhood. Um, and, and, you know, obviously this goes without saying, all it does is it, it's negative outcomes all around. There's no positive to weight stigma, not even in terms of what it's used for, which is to encourage people to uptake health-promoting behaviors. And, you know, it doesn't even do that. So there's no pluses.
3: Thank you, Mikey. Um, I think everybody is nodding with you in agreement there. I'm going to go to our next question. Stuart, I have a feeling this one is for you. A recent report published in the UK uh, by the Women and Equalities Committee on Body Image with heaps of important recommendations which were backed up by years of evidence what are the panelists thoughts on the UK government dismissing many of these key recommendations in the report for example continuing to weigh children in schools not scrapping calorie labeling on meals cafes and restaurants continuing to use BMI as a key health key indicator for health how do we actually generate change at a systemic level
8: yeah, good question. Um, something that we've battled with uh, for some time, uh, because there is, uh, and there has been, you know, a lot of calls for changes at government level. Um, use of body mass index, for instance, has been, you know, a discussion point for a long, long time. Um, so, you know, I think they're continuing to be, uh, you know, topics of interest, uh, linking to the National Child Measurement Program that um, was mentioned, and, and weighing in schools for for the non uh, UK uh, attendees. Um, one of the issues inevitably particularly in the UK uh, with this system is that um, this is a lack of outcome anyway uh, you know why are you ultimately measuring uh, children uh, where are you measuring children and what's the outcome but most importantly we all should be should be considering like any public health intervention what's the unintended consequences um and when we start to have evidence, which we now have, of course, about uh, the impacts of weighing children, when you know them, they're not really unintended anymore. They then become something that we actually are aware of. So, you know, continuing to potentially have a negative impact, but maybe not addressing those uh, becomes an issue in itself. In terms of moving things forward, you know, we're amassing you know, lots of different information. I think one of the issues with body mass index in particular is... Um, from a from a government perspective is what replaces body mass index, because, you know, we could get to a point of saying, well, actually, we shouldn't be measuring people at all. Um, From a government's perspective, and I would assume it would be the same for any other government, they're going to want to replace it with something else. Um, So body mass index, of course, isn't ideal, uh, has lots of limitations related to it for many different reasons, whether it's ethnicity or or stature or or other. Um, but it needs to be replaced with something else uh, in terms of what uh, government uh, initiatives or other are being rolled out. So I think that's one of the issues around body mass index. Um, And uh, I've kind of lost the start of the question. It's
3: just how we generate change at
8: systemic... Yeah, so generating change, I think that ultimately, and and this is where I think many things are lacking, and this is where I think that actually, particularly with weight stigma, we need to come together. There are, even on this panel, I think there are some disparate uh, opinions in some instances where we don't necessarily align. But actually, what we do align on in particular is that the weight stigma is detrimental, the weight stigma needs to be eradicated. And yes, we may think that there are different ways of achieving those. But actually, you know, as a collective, and this is something that, that the healthcare community would agree on, and other groups, we need to come together and form some kind of, uh, you know, Uh, combined collaboration that ultimately says we need to address this and we need to bring together uh, the stakeholders, the policymakers and other to come into this conversation. Um, Then we need to really work out, well, how do we start to remove weight stigma in a lot of the policies, the processes, the actions that are occurring within society? You know, whether that's in the media, whether that's in education, whether that's in healthcare or workplaces or other, um, I think that ultimately is, is where we need to be because I think that there's still too much um, standing in, in one side of the room and throwing stones you know, often on you know quite important topics, but ultimately the end goal is relatively similar. We need to identify how we can get to that end goal that we can work together to address this because we are all agreed on that one uh, most important outcome.
3: Thank you, Stuart. We've got a few more minutes. I want to see, maybe we can get through two more questions. Healthism is so internalized idea that we should all strive towards health, and there is only one idea of what health means. How can we being, begin to tackle healthism, or should we be tackling this? Is that uh, being distracted? Uh, Stuart? Uh,
8: I, I think one of the issues, um, ultimately, is the set of a society and the way that the government will work, um, Uh, We mentioned policies earlier. Policies will only come into action and government will only support actions when they see that it's something that the public will ultimately follow. They want to go with the public majority. They want to stay in power and many other other reasons. So, um, you know, with policies, we've had a policy that was being proposed today around, uh, you know, taxes of of food products and so on, you know, etc. It's a proposal. It's probably a finger in the air. Our public going to follow this? And if they do, then maybe the government will get behind it. So I think that ultimately is part of the issue around the way that things are set up. And healthism ultimately at the moment is something that society has um, been socialized into, into ultimately taking forward as a really important part of the way that we live here in the UK at least.
3: OK, thank you. Uh, we've got three more minutes, Sharon. I'm just looking at you that I can fit in one more question. Um, Uh, So to your point, um, uh, Sarah, but others may have opinions on this, um, if weight and or other stigmatized appearances were to be considered as protected characteristics characteristics within equality law, do you think this would have enough of an impact on discrimination, um, stigma accept? So uh, perhaps, Sarah, we know your thoughts that you think we should have uh, some kind of legislation around that. What do other panelists think? Thank you, Mikey. Is
7: this? strictly in terms of um, like weight as a protected status or are we talking about like a disease designation? There's...
3: Oh, that, that That's a key point and thank you for making that. I think how I understood it is that people don't self-regulate and sometimes although we all could be more empathic and people could educate themselves more to Nia's point if they are working in healthcare, if there were uh specific uh legislation that said these things have to be in place so um let's just look so discrimination or on stigma I guess could play out in a in a, a variety of ways so but it's whether we think that we're we're looking at uh looking at self-regulate uh, self-regulation or whether it goes into some kind of legislation uh, protective
7: I think that legislation is a is an important part of this so so for example weight status isn't a protected like class in the united states um and you know there are various clear examples of discrimination at work educate like in various domains like on the basis of weight that those kinds of legislation could help and possibly provide a protection against however um, the way that, you know, discrimination, like, law works is, is very different from what we think is, like, oh, um, I've been fired because of this thing. And now I can, you know, possibly receive protection from the law because of this specific identity that I hold. Um, and, like, it doesn't always work that way. So there are plenty of people who are discriminated against and, uh, like, in terms of identities that are protected classes, and, like, nothing happens. Yeah. That happens all the time. So, you know, legislation is an extremely important piece. But that often follows changes in public opinion, right? So I think it's much more important that, you know, I think, especially in public health, for us to take a collective stance against stigmatization on the basis of weight. And, that, and, and that's something I think that our field doesn't do at all, ever. There's always this, feeling of being beholden to something else, like beholden to policymakers, beholden to funding institutions, beholden to whatever that prevents us from taking a stance against the use of the BMI, for example. Um, And I think that that's why it's incredibly important for us to also communicate directly with the public and say like, no, as a field of professionals in this area, we stand against, et cetera, et cetera. that hasn't been done, and I think that in public health, that kind of action is stymied by multiple sources, you know, of conflict. Um, I wish it wasn't the case, but eventually, it gets to the point where we're at a crisis right now, where you know people understand or are starting to understand how deadly weight stigma is, and they're stuck. They're at a loss for what to do about it, and I think that the first step is is to sort of leverage our power our collective expertise as as people who are supposed to be the holders or whatever or the producers of knowledge like to say no actually these common wisdoms we hold about weight and health and morality are misplaced and misguided and they're incorrect um
3: thank you mikey i'm i'm going to bring it to a close there we could have gone on there there were so many more amazing questions that i had for you and the audience have to for you but i'm going to thank um each of you so much for the learning and the clarity um so thank you and i give you my little (laughs) clap and over
2: to sharon Thank you so much, Karen, and thanks to each and every one of you. Um, on behalf of CAR, Karen, we'd like to thank you so much for your eloquence and your sensitivity in, in moderating this
1: really rich discussion.
0: We hope you enjoyed that as much as we did.
1: Yeah, I got so much from listening to that back. Um, there's also, by the way, a transcript that is available and that is linked in the episode show notes. So please do check that out.
0: Yeah. So, a Big thank you again to the panellists, Sarah LeBrock, Mikey Mercedes, Nia Patterson, Professor Esther Rothblum, Dr Stuart Flint, and to Karen Franklin for moderating. And a big thanks to um,
1: the Centre for Appearance Researchers, Sharon, Georgina, Grace and Nick for organising the panel. And thanks to Amy, Helena, Heidi and Nicola for pulling together such a terrific virtual conference.
0: And that just leaves us to say thank you for listening to Appearance Matters, the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to share, subscribe, rate and review. It helps other people find the podcast and gives us a little boost.
1: It really does. And remember, you can keep up to date with our centre's work on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter.
0: All the links are in our bio.